Welcome back to another episode of PageCast, a book-centered podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Ball Publishers. I am Annie Ulifir and I'm the Publishing Director at Jonathan Ball. Today's episode is about one of the richest people on earth, someone who many people idolize for his entrepreneurial flair, but others love to hate due to his often controversial statements and actions. Elon Musk was born and raised in South Africa. Many years ago, he was an awkward schoolboy in Pretoria who loved comics and science fiction. The award-winning journalist and author Michael Flismas has written a biography about this boundary-pushing billionaire. And for the updated edition of this biography that was recently released, he interviewed Elon's father, Errol, who still lives in the country. Michael will be talking to fellow journalist and writer TJ Stradom about Elon's remarkable life and his many successful ventures. Enjoy the conversation and feel free to tweet about it. Uh, good day. So I'm TJ Stradom, author of Coursebackers Billions and Christo Visa Risk and Riches. And I'm speaking to a fellow author here, Michael Flismas, who wrote the latest Elon Musk book, Elon Musk Risking It All. Michael, great to have you here. What do you say? What can you tell me in a tweet about our man Elon? Who is he for anyone who doesn't know? Well, thanks, TJ. Great to be with you. And uh, thanks for the opportunity. If I had to tweet about uh, Elon Musk, I'd say he is Twitter at the moment. <laughs> he, he is the tweet. He's in the tweet. He's, he's, he's around the tweet. He's all over the tweet. I think in the context of this book, you know, I think it was important for me to, to get across he's a, he's a South African. He's a South African born, raised individual who has certainly reached for the stars and is changing the landscape and the future as we know it. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, that, that would certainly be my take on, on the man. Yeah, brilliant. So he is, for those out there who have not heard of Elon, he is that uber entrepreneur, isn't he? What's nice is there's, there's been so much written about him. And, and, and I mean, it's, it's almost strange to think that someone might not know who Elon is because there's written about him and he, he's, a, he's a celebrity uh, I, I think in the book you call him the people's billionaire somewhere, which I think was an excellent uh, description. But he's done so many things, but there are so many questions about where he comes from and, and, and why he turned out the way he did, why he started these businesses. And maybe we should start, firstly, with uh, with your process. After that, I think we, we talk a little bit about Elon the man himself, and then I think we can look at... Uh, What's next? So, I mean, your process. How do you go about writing about someone who has so much written about him already and is already a formed character in many people's minds? What's your process there, Mike? Yes, um, you know, as you say, you know, he, he is somebody who resonates with so many people at, at so many different levels. And, and he is very unique like that. Um, you know, you mentioned the people's billionaire. He, people see him as this cult figure. They see him as the, a savior of the planet. They see him as somebody who gives hope. He really has brought a different, uh, perception of, you know, he's not just this rich man that wants to go into space kind of thing or do amazing things. And so it was very challenging when it came to my process. Um, there is so much out there about Elon Musk, as you say, and so much of it is just myth and so much of it is just self-perpetuating. It's, it's reported on one platform and it just keeps going. And so it was really important for me to sort of unravel a lot of that and get back to the source and, and verify these things 
for myself. When it came to the project itself, I was determined to avoid any bias. So I actually, I never read another single autobiography or biography about Elon Musk before I began my process. I was determined to do my own research and come to my own conclusions about him. And also, you know, if needs be, dismiss certain things that had been uh, been reported on and, and do my own interviews and really do my own digging about the man to get to the core of who he is and what he is, hopefully. So that was important for me and, uh, you know, not to sort of be led anyway or influenced in any way and really just get, get to come to my own conclusion about him. So it, it was a, you know, it was a fun book to write because it, it felt like a journey for me as much as he is out there. I was discovering it uh, from a different way and, and speaking to people that hadn't been you know, interviewed before and really trying to come to my own conclusion about, okay, well, who is this man and, and what is his vision? It struck me that you were uh, almost a curious fellow South African now trying to unravel who this guy is that is suddenly you know, a global celebrity, depending on when you measure it, richest guy in the world by virtue of you know, his Tesla stock. And I, and I think you, you did that very well. You cut through the weeds and, and you painted a picture of, you know, someone who grew up, you know, it could have been you or me if, if you look at where he actually came from. But where he went, I don't know. I, I don't want to talk too early, but that's not you or me, is it, Michael? hundred so. <laughs> percent. And, you know, actually, as I, as I mentioned in the book, uh, you know, I went to the same high school. I was just a few years behind him. I shared the same science teacher as he did, and I knew her very well. And I reached out to her as well for some comment. And uh, and I often joke and I say, well, I left, left that science class learning how to wire a plug and uh, and he became a billionaire. So somewhere I missed a lesson. But, but yeah, you know, it, it, it was important. For me, and, and as you know as well, having been through a similar process, it was important for me to present both sides of the man, to present as objective a view as possible and let, let people make up their minds. I didn't want to make up anybody's mind about who Elon Musk is. I just wanted to reflect his journey and, and point people in the direction as to who he could possibly be and become and what he represents to humanity. What I found great about the book is you understood his origins. Like uh, you drank the same water at the same school. I mean, you understand the weather in Pretoria. You get what he grew up with. How did that color the process for you? I mean, uh, uh, was it easy then to pin down where he diverged from what what the rest of the Pretoria Boys High guys did after school? Or was it was it more difficult because you, you understood him better? Yes, I, th- I think that was the that was the key for me. You know, when when um, Jeremy Borain and Eugene Ashton suggested the idea and, and came to me with the idea, it was exactly that link that I you know that I had some sort of background into his early life in Pretoria. You know, I knew the culture, knew the environment, um, and and Pretoria is like that. You know, Pretoria can be a very small town when you know certain families and people do sort of mix and know each other quite well. And and then you get, you know, an institution like Pretoria Boys High, which is 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 quite distinct as well. Um and uh, as a as a proud old boy, I'll say old boys have gone around the world and, and done amazing things. That was the nice sort of hook for me about it was 
I could offer something different here. I could give a glimpse of those, you know, 17 lost years, so to speak, in South Africa, you know, and paint a picture for somebody who might know everything about Elon Musk, the businessman, the entrepreneur, and what he's done since PayPal and SpaceX and all of that, but might not know that environment. And that was really key. I think the difference you asked where, where it sort of, where the divergence came, that for me is, is, is the remarkable thing about him, you know, is that, you know, at the age of 17, he could so clearly see a pathway for himself and a future for himself and, and was able to then say, and I need to get, you know, I need to get to America and I need to begin that journey and that process. And that, that sort of independence, you know, that is something certainly, you know, Pretoria Boys I prides itself on, on creating well-rounded men, not just academic brilliance or sporting brilliance and everything like that. And he certainly did represent that going on and uh, at such a young age, seeing such a clear pathway for himself. Yeah, that, I mean, that really is the thing that sets him apart. I mean, as a 17-year-old, uh, what do you know about the world? What do you know about where you want to go? And I, I think, as you say, those lost years, I think you filled that in so well because, I mean, now anyone who's an Elon Musk watcher or musketeer, as, as they say, sort of understands the origin story. That's what you want. And, and you want to see how can you maybe replicate that for your own kids if you want uh, a little Elon uh, in your household. Absolutely, TJ. And I think what was so nice for me in a sense as well was that, you know, there was no indication at at school. He was quite, you know, invisible in a sense. There was no, you know, uh, uh, you know, there's such a fixation these days on, uh, you know, uh, children need to you be these, these high achievers and, and, and achieve on, you know, across the board and, and be in seen in the right places, seen in the right circles and everything like that. But yeah, was somebody that was, that was really pretty invisible at school. Uh, you know, I spoke to a number of people who said, Oh, you know, I knew about him, but he, he kept himself was pretty quiet. I looked through academic records and there's nothing that suggests he was an out-and-out genius. I mean, he wasn't getting straight A's in everything. He wasn't up for academic prizes. In fact, his brother Kimball outperformed him in certain subjects like history and things like that. And even in science, he did well, but... You know, he wasn't, it wasn't like that we were dealing with some sort of savant here that, that just, um, you know, redefined an academic institution and, and marks and things like that. And I think that, that for me is so important is that there's, there's very much a normality to him in that sense. And as you mentioned, that I think is a sense of hope that he didn't appear to be a genius right from the start, but he's achieved genial things. And uh, I think that's that's such a nice message for for the younger generation. And you know, uh, I, I know we might get to it, but but I think you know his father even also said to me he was never a genius, but he did epitomise that South African spirit of determination, grit, perseverance. He can persevere, and and if you look at his business history, certainly, and the challenges that he's faced, the fact that he just kept on keeping on. Uh, often eventually led to the great success. Especially those insane hours that he put in at PayPal, sleeping sleeping on the floor, at Tesla, sleeping on a factory floor at a certain stage, you know, SpaceX nearly killing him. It's it's almost something worse than a work ethic. It's like a work uh, obsession in, in, in a sense. And that's a strange thing. So maybe we can get to that later. The, the, the thing I want to ask you first is, did you speak to Elon? Did you reach out to him? 
did you have any contact with him whatsoever? So I did reach out to him. I reached out to him on a number of platforms. And I thought, you know, the most obvious one where he's very, very active. I reached out to him on Twitter. A couple of times I reached out to him and, um, and said, you know, really just the project and, and, and the book was never dependent upon his input. It was meant to be a straight, you know, an unofficial biography of the man just chronicling his journey and filling in those, those early years. But obviously, I felt I'm going to take the opportunity if I, you know, if I can get his input, that would be fantastic. And I said to him, you know, I'm busy with this project, no hidden agendas, really just would appreciate your input and something like that. I tried that a number of times via Twitter. I emailed a SpaceX, uh, I emailed Tesla, a number of departments there. I reached out via his mother. I did try via Kimball as well, but never got a response, unfortunately. Subsequently, I've been given details as to why that was the case. He had committed to another project on this. So, so it does make sense. But yes, it would have been lovely to have his input. I have been told he has read the book. I haven't received any feedback on it. I'm still on Twitter, so he must have liked it. But would you, I mean, you know, Michael, and, and you've, you've done it both ways, but you, you don't need the input of the person you're writing about to see them and to write about them and to sketch them out uh, for a larger audience. In some sense, I mean, that frees you up to be truly objective, to let the surroundings tell the story, because if I ask you to write your own biography now, an autobiography of Michael Vlismus, then your story will have a certain slant. Maybe that's not the way you're perceived by the rest of the world. And with Elon, there's probably even, you know, a much larger divergence from the way he sees himself and the way the world sees him and what is actually the truth. So that freed you up. And, and I, and I think you used that remarkably well. So, um, in the end, are you maybe glad that he didn't talk to you? Um, yes, I think, I think you're a hundred percent right. You know, I was, it did allow me to, you know, he, he is such a pervasive character. So in a sense, you, as you say, you almost don't need to speak to him. There is so much out there about him, a lot of interviews, a lot of material. And, and that was a, a, a hugely uh, taxing job in terms of all of those, you know, crediting all of those sources, going through that diligently, checking all of those sources as well, you know, fact checking everything. It allowed me to do what I what I certainly enjoy is is and is paint the picture around the man. So so you know, the next best thing and and, and the enjoyable part for me was to was to then really dig very deep and speak to as many people who knew him around him, things like that. So it really became almost like a detective, you know, and I went into the space that he inhabits, the digital space, and it was going into deep Facebook and and class photographs of early primary school years in Pretoria, and suddenly there's Elon Musk in a chess team photo, and okay, who's who's next to him on the left and the right, front and the back, and how can I find these people and, and, and speak to them? And so it was digging up names, emailing people and, and phoning them. And, you know, a lot of people then come back and say, yes, yes, of course I knew him. You know, uh, he was in my class. I knew him really well. We were great friends. And then following that up and then suddenly you, 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 you come to the realization, okay, look, I, you know, the person says, I didn't know him that well, but, you know, he was there. And then striking the gold of finding a Danny Warnick, his first childhood friend who knew him so well and, and spent weekends with him. So, so that was a nice process, speaking to people who knew the family on, on May's side and, and really doing all of that digging and those interviews and, and putting that together. And, and again, as you say, yes, it is, it's a little bit more freeing when you get so many different views of who the man is. 
and you can then paint a fuller picture than just his opinion of perhaps who he is. I, I think that was ex the, the fact that you got to people who actually spent time with him. So you could see his formative years through other eyes. And and obviously they've thought about it for the last 30 or so years. Uh, I mean, seeing Elon achieve a lot, you would think back on it and think, well, how can I place this into context and that into context? But what you did is you filled in that part where you've got a broken family in Elon's case, but both versions of that is not out there. And I think what you did well is get some balance there, uh, especially now in, in the in the second edition where you have Errol's voice in it quite clearly. I think if you read it, you could take every word that he says as gospel, or you could see it as something that's part of the of the broader um, lexicon out there about Elon. Um, so maybe tell us a bit about how you got to Errol finally, the father of Elon, who has been, uh, you know, vilified to some extent in the press. Um, and how did you get his voice in the book this time? Well, I'd actually, Errol was one of the, the, the first people I'd reached out to, you know, when I was busy with the book as well. And, and I never heard from him at all. And then uh, almost a year later, he, he came back to me, you know, in a response. And it was, it was a confusing response, but, but, uh, but I'd, I'd gotten a response at least. So, um, and, and, and by then I was, I was, you know, almost done with a manuscript. So um, I followed up immediately and I said, look, I, I still would love to get your version of events here. And then it went cold again for a bit. Um, so then that's when the first edition then came out. Out of the blue, I got a response from him, a WhatsApp from him. He said, let's have a chat. And I said, okay, fantastic. I'd, I'd love to come through. And, you know, he's based in Longaban, So it was a drive through one morning. He's a fantastic character. He really is. And and you're not sure always what to believe and what to make of it. He is certainly eccentric. He's certainly very much out there and um, and has no problem offending you the minute you walk into the front door. But I also found that I found, I must say, I found a sincerity about him. I found a, a genuineness about him as well. He, 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 he hides it very well. And and his first words to me, he said, listen, I've read the book. He says, the first half is absolute rubbish and it's a fairy tale, he says, but the rest of it is brilliant. So so I said to him, okay, well, that's why I'm here. I'd like to get uh, your version of the fairy tale, so to speak. And, 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 you know, I think where he disagrees is that, you know, the first half is is very much um, May's version of their relationship. And, and I said to him, but I, that's exactly why I reached out to you at the time to get your version. And unfortunately, I never heard from you. Um, he then also said that, that Elon had said to him, you know, knew of me reaching out and said to him, don't speak to anybody again, because he was busy with his own project, I think. You know, it, it, it just seems there was a difference of opinion in terms of how May viewed the marriage and, and Elon and how he viewed the marriage in terms of Errol and raising Elon as well. And I think now that I do have his voice in the second uh, edition of the book, uh, it feels to me a much more complete book in that sense. I would have loved to have had it earlier, but unfortunately he only reached out again later. Mm, I think it works so well because it, it really rounds off the book in the end and it uh... – you know, you're almost left breathless sometimes when you when you see some of the things that he just says. You know, he, he <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, uh, a, like a, a character in some HBO series that would doctor whatever house or like uh, you know someone 
Tony Soprano, yes. you know, someone who just totally shoots <laughs> from the hip. Um, but, absolutely, absolutely. But it adds a lot of value in it, and it tells you the world in which Elon grew up, and also tells you, I mean, if 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 you if you believe the internet's version, then they have no contact. If you believe Errol's version, they actually have quite a bit of contact. So he's still in yes. Elon's life, and and is that the sense that you also got that that was genuine that they that they actually still speak? They do. Um, and although, again, TJ, you know, in a strange kind of way, um, you know, they converse over email. Now, that might just be a time difference matter. You would think a father and a son might might speak over the phone a bit regularly, and, and perhaps they do. But there is still a, very much a relationship, and there is a very much a, a sense of caring from from Elon for his father still. You know, Errol mentioned to me that 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 that, that Elon had contacted him and said, uh, you know, I'm worried about your security. Um, you know, have you got proper security around the house? Sent a team of people out there to install cameras, you know, alarm systems and everything so that his father was safe and secure, you know, in his home. And vice versa, how, you know, when, when Elon, in, in Errol's words, started to become quite political on Twitter, Errol says he reached out to Elon and said, look, I'm really worried about you. You are offending some very powerful people. And And again, as you say, the character in the HBO series, comes out when he when he says to his son and they will just take you out and and you're too important for that you cannot you know be careful what's your security like and who appoints your security and who appoints the people who appoints your security so that they do certainly they are in contact and and there does seem to be a a level of care in in that sense for each other's safety it certainly doesn't strike you as a normal father and son relationship and I think, you know, Errol, Errol sort of said that as well. He said, you know, when he was raising his children, being, you know, with an, uh, the background of an electrical engineer himself, he says he saw his children as projects. They were projects to complete how to do, do so in, in, in the most effective and, and successful way. I don't think it was a very loving relationship. I don't say there was a complete absence of it. Um, I think there was a lot of elements in terms of how Errol operates and thinks that he inculcated into Elon, certainly, and is, is a part of Elon's success. Yeah, I don't think it was a traditional father-son relationship. Although, again, you know, there are the stories he tells, Errol tells of, of some of the, the early childhood years. He cared for his children. He definitely did. And, and I think that's, you know, where I sort of make the point as well. He, you know, he says he cared deeply for May, his wife as well, and loved her immensely, um, which is completely divergent from May's version of, of what was an abusive marriage, she said. So he seems to, he seems to maybe have fathered and loved and cared in a very different way to the traditional way we would see that. Uh, Michael, did you get to May at all? Did you, did you speak to her? I did reach out to her as well, and and she she also politely declined any current comment, and she said because she's she's written her own book, and she said everything that I want to say is in there, and she said she she wouldn't want to comment any further, and uh, and I had I had all of that from uh, from a copy of her book as well. It's it's actually very useful to to have her voice in full in the book, and then to contextualize it with. Mm. You know, with other interviews around it and uh, sketching the, the the world that they that they lived in, so I think that absolutely, yeah, that also worked well. So the the interesting thing is 
what you did that's different is you found that personal touch and that origin story. But Elon's world is obviously a world of entrepreneurship and a world of building companies worth a few million dollars, then a few hundred million dollars, then a few billion dollars, and then, you know, Tesla that, that struck a trillion dollars. So it's just interesting. But if, if that's the only thing that you're interested in about Musk, then then read all of the rest. But you have that in there. You you sketched that out. And I think what you what you did so greatly is that you can see it building step for step on his own emotional journey at the time. And and I think you filled that in quite nicely. About the emotional journey, so his ex-wife said that he has this ability to move between tribes, and that's that's his success. He's not only an engineer, but he's he can also wear a suit and be a venture capital uh, investor, or he can also be a, you know, he could shoot from the sidelines, or he could be in the establishment. Uh, could, could, could we talk about that? How does it work? How, what, what enabled him to be able to move between these tribes? Yeah, that was, that was an important distinction that she made. And, and, you know, she was basically saying that, that he's, he's able to speak those various languages in a business sense, in an engineer sense and an entrepreneurial sense. And exactly that he's as comfortable developing the software or on the factory floor with the rockets as he is sitting in the boardroom, as he is being the marketing face of something as well. Although, uh, you know, she did also uh, come to the conclusion that, that you know, at, at his heart, he, he he wants to be known as an engineer uh, more than uh, a, gra- a great businessman or or anything else. He is an engineer at heart and, and prides himself on that quite a bit and has always done so. But, you know, his ability, and I, I think that's why, you know, this man resonates so much. You know, if we get back to the original thing, he, he resonates with, with the layman. He resonates with highly successful business people. He can speak the ordinary person's language and knows what inspires hope and, and what they would want. You know, the vision of Mars being a very clear example of that. Um, and, but then he can also get down to the nitty gritty and the nuts and the bolts of, of, of a boardroom discussion or, or, or anything, you know, anything else around that. So, so yes, he certainly is quite multidimensional. And, and I think that's, that's what makes him so different for me. Um, and, and also, you know, the other big thing, you know, very much the title of risking it all as well is that, it is so different uh, to 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 most billionaires. I would say is that that he has no, you know, the money side of things really doesn't seem to be a motivator for him. Because if it was, he could long ago have sailed off into the sunset and enjoyed it. And and yet he keeps risking those fortunes to back his visions, to back his development. Well, well, having written about about entrepreneurs, what they usually do is. As soon as they've made a big success somewhere, they never have to use their money, their own money again to start something new. But Elon, for some reason, uses his own money again and again and punts it all mm. into his ventures. And then at the 11th hour, it, it comes off and it, it, it works. Mm. You sort of think, well, had he lost it all, he probably would be able to start again. I mean, is that a sense that you get that he would, if you, if you take him to zero, he'll be, he'll be back? 
Absolutely. I've, I've actually got no doubt about that. And you've hit the nail on the head. I think, I think if he, if he lost everything, he wouldn't be lost. He would, he would start something else. He'd begin somewhere else again. I think he's the kind of man that could have several fortunes in his lifetime if he wanted. And, and, and it, I think it just comes again down to that, that, uh, that, that perseverance, that ability to just keep going and chasing what has to be something bigger, what has to be a vision, a dream, as cliched as it sounds, he has a passion and that drives him more than any just basic financial success around something. Clearly, he has an end game. There's no doubt about that. And everything is plugging towards that. But certainly, he's driven by more than just a profit. The thing you mentioned earlier, Mike, that I thought maybe the reason he moves between all these times is, is he he actually is somewhat relatable, even though... You know, he seems a little bit uncomfortable in his own skin at times uh, when he dances mm. in front of people, you know, walk the Egyptian or when he does that kind of stuff. He just looks incredibly awkward. And, and I mean, is that something that you think that the general public actually relates to? Because they think, well, what if I what if I'm wearing a T-shirt and jeans and I have to launch a new car? What would I look like? I would look mm. incredibly awkward, wouldn't I? Absolutely, I think I think he is he is so normal for people. I think I think people feel like they can almost reach out and touch him, which which a lot of billionaires might appear to be in ivory towers. I think people feel like this is this is someone like me again, as you say. You know, dress is very very normal. Doesn't doesn't really flaunt his wealth at all, and doesn't doesn't really appear to spend it on himself, but just keep investing in his projects and his and his visions. You know, I think that's why he's, he's, he's again that moving between the tribes. He's the celebrity status, being around a lot of celebrities. His earlier wife also said, you know, um, whether it's Chris Martin of Coldplay, whether it's Hollywood actors, you know, everybody was also drawn to him quite clearly from an early start. Business people drawn to him as well. So, so I think he is. He is very much a figure that, that people feel, again, is, this is tangible. Then he, again, knows how to engender a little bit of hope. You know, when he came up with the idea, let's colonize Mars, I mean, it was a brilliant strategy. Still in my heart, um, I'd, I'd love for him to explain it to me one day. I don't think he truly believes we will one day exist successfully and that humanity can replace Mars with, uh, with Earth. Um, it is just such an extreme environment. But it's a great ploy to say it, it was a really good marketing strategy to get people excited about SpaceX and let's let's start doing this again. Well, what is it? It's a visible goal. It's something that you can aspire to. It might not be an attainable goal, but it is visible. It's, you know, reach for the stars. Even with you know the boring company and and, and tunneling under Los Angeles and creating highways underground. I mean, he, he funds the start of that by selling his version of a zombie flamethrower and it sells out in record time. It becomes such a problem for the authorities that they have to legislate against it going any further, that there's actually a Senate discussion about it. Say we cannot have people running around with flamethrowers. <laughs> so, you know, he really, there again, he, he's able to tap into that popular culture, you know, the zombie market the zombie industry is 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 a billion dollar industry all its own from films and products and branding and all that kind of thing and he knows it he knows that that interest and is able to to move into all of these categories really well and use them for his projects yeah he doesn't believe it but he takes it seriously and he knows what a market is and how to exploit the market because that is clearly what he's done with tesla 
and, and that's quite a mass market. And he had to capture people's imag- imaginations. But Tesla sells half a million vehicles a year. That's a lot of people. It's not as big as Volkswagen, but still, that's a lot of people. But with SpaceX again, the market is very small, but the market is very small in terms of the number of participants. But there's a lot of money to be made there, and there's a lot of money that flows through that. And he identified that too. Do mm. you, uh, maybe let's, do you think the future of space travel is private? You know, TJ, there are immense strides being made there, and I think it's going to come sooner than all of us expect. I think it's very close. You know, there was, I was, you know, I've been having discussions with individuals and people, and and there are already plans to upgrade the International Space Station. There's there's plans to get people, uh, research scientists, members of the public, even. Um, they really want to push the boundaries of showing how people can go to space and do so across the board, across age spectrums, and show how safe it is, and push the boundaries of what kind of research can be done there. So I think, I think that is. That is happening at an accelerated rate, and I, I do believe certainly there will be it will come with this push for privatized space travel and tourism. It comes with a very big proviso for me, though, and a very big concern that there's going to be. And, and I'm, I'm not sort of I don't want to be a doomsday prophet about it. I think it's wonderful, and I think humanity must explore, and it's a, and it's a great thing. But but when you get the public involved, and I think we just saw it recently with the Titan submersible. When it goes wrong, which it inevitably at some point has to do because these are extreme environments, when it goes wrong, the members of the public are involved, it becomes a tricky situation for society. It becomes a harder situation for society to handle. And I think that's it's space for me and private space travel is going to have to overcome that challenge when it does happen. You look at what happened with the Challenger it's almost as if society views the fact that when a disaster like that happens, but there were professionals on board, astronauts or anything like that, professionally trained individuals, it's sad, but people accept that these were professionals doing what they were trained for. But when you have a school teacher on board, suddenly it's, it, it, it's horrifying for, for, for humanity. It's like, wow, this is quite a shock. Same with that Titan submersible when there's a 19-year-old on board and something happens like that. It's like, Yuck, this is not this is not great. And I think that's going to be a very big challenge for, for privatized space travel. If and, and, and I almost feel just in terms of timeframes or something like that, when something like that might happen, how to overcome that. The public gets emotionally involved when they think one of them is, uh, exactly, you know, is the victim. But yeah, if it's a professional astronaut, it's part of the risk that that person took on as part of the job so that you sort of can make that leap. Yes. Yeah. So, Michael, what will be Elon Musk's legacy? What's the thing that people will remember him for? I think people will remember him for perhaps, you know, I like to think he's made, he's made humanity look outward a little bit again. He's made them look up. He's made them look bigger. He's made them think bigger. I think he's he's shown people just because we've done it one way for generations or decades or whatever doesn't mean that there isn't another way. And and I think perseverance, perseverance to keep chasing something that you believe in. Tesla is a great example. It seemed a dream for so long, and even when he was busy with it, it remained kind of like it seemed a very niche concept. Yet now there's not a single major car manufacturer out there that cannot afford to not have 
a viable electric vehicle solution in its lineup. I think he's he's made people look to the horizon a little bit again and believe in possibly, yeah, the greatness of humanity and the good things about humanity because he certainly, for me, has that sincerity about him. He, he believes in the goodness of humanity and what we can achieve. In terms of the business side of things, I think his legacy is probably going to be space and it's going to be Starlink. I think that's going to be huge for him. I think possibly being at a point where he's, he has a controlling interest in the majority of global communication and how that goes, I certainly think that's going to be massive for him as well. But yes, I think he'll be somebody that people said that, again, the people's billionaire and, and did something that, that got us all excited a little bit again. Don't change people's, you know, that many people's uh, view on the world without risking it all. And that's the title of this book, Michael. It's a, it's a great read. Uh, I can very much recommend it. If you want to know more about Elon and his origins and where he's going and understanding, this is the book to go for. And it's uh, Michael Vlissmus risking it all. Thanks, Michael. Thank you very much, TJ. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to this episode, and we hope that you'll join us again next week. Until then, happy reading.